Welcome to the VFF podcast. My name's Emma Germano and I'm the VFF president. Uh, the VFF Making Our Farms Safer Project is bringing you this podcast episode series discussing issues affecting farmers as a result of the extraordinary wet conditions that have washed over the state this year. We understand the difficulties, challenges and very real impact that it's had on farmers and farming communities. Loss of stock and crops, damage to infrastructure, restricted access to paddocks, feed and clean water, delays in harvest, downgraded crops, machinery bogging issues, waterborne disease issues, financial threats that a once promising season did not foresee. We know that these are stressful, challenging and unknown times and unfortunately a reality that many are facing at present. We wanted to share with you listening today, many of you I imagine who are in the back of the paddock or are trying to get stuck into a harvest season, uh, so you're now unable to make it to upcoming community info sessions, some key points of information and support available over the next two podcast episodes to help in getting through the wet summer of 2022. In this episode, we welcome onto the VFF podcast, Dr. Kathy Bunter, Veterinary Officer at Agriculture Victoria, who will be discussing general animal and livestock welfare concerns with floods like fly strike, pink eye and mastitis. Thanks, Emma. Hello, my name is Tegan Buckley and I will be chatting with Kathy in this episode. Over the last 28 years, Dr. Kathy Bunter has worked as a vet in private mixed veterinary practices in Victoria, Queensland and Tasmania. Kathy has been a veterinary officer at Agriculture Victoria for the last four and a half years and previously lectured at Longanong College for four years in the areas of animal health and welfare, animal nutrition and animal production. Kathy is currently acting principal veterinary officer, equine, with a special interest in Japanese encephalitis, which we will be covering a little bit more in this episode. Kathy lives on a family farm in Western Victoria and they produce cattle and sheep and also run some free-range pigs and horses. Dr. Kathy Bunter, welcome and thank you so much for joining us on the VFF Making Our Farm Safer Project podcast series. Thank you very much for having me. It's um, my pleasure to, to help you out and to share a bit of wisdom on some of the things that are certainly impacting uh, farmers and their animals uh, post-flood. And just to say too that if, if people are or do have any concerns about flooding and how their livestock are affected, um, the AgVic website, it's, it's a really great resource for information and, and help um, if anyone needs um, any any information there. And it's also accurate and, and current information as well. So, yeah, I recommend the AgVic re- website if anyone needs any further help with that. Oh, thank you so much. It's always really good to know that that website is constantly updated as uh, things change and evolve. So to kick us off, could you provide us with an update on general animal health issues or what you're seeing out and about in the paddocks at the moment with the flooding and the waterlogged pastures? Okay, so so one of the uh, most common things we're seeing is probably animals in general just being exhausted, um, you know, animals trapped in flood water or unable to remove themselves from it. Uh, it really has an impact on both their, um, you know, their immune system, but also their ability to get away from uh, potential bacteria in the water um, and even just getting exhausted from trying to get out of the water, particularly for animals like sheep, um, especially where they're car- carrying a lot of wool on them, uh, that, that wool gets really um, heavily waterlogged and, and they have a lot of trouble moving through that water. Um, you know, Other things that we're seeing across all species are 
you know, lameness in general because, you know, when their feet are in contact with water for a long time, um, it makes the their feet actually soft and therefore they're more prone to, you know, having bacteria go through into the soft tissue of their feet. And that, you know, that's across the board in sheep and cattle and um, horses and even alpacas. Um, so really, really important to keep on top of lamenesses in their feet. Um, obviously, we're seeing a lot of traumatic injuries just from being caught up in, uh, you know, things in the flood water as well. So a lot of animals getting wounds, um, the occasional animals even having like leg fractures and things, and, and they're probably more prone um, in horses and some of the bigger uh, bigger animals. Uh, we're seeing obviously infections in there, uh, any tissue really that's been, um, you know, in water for a long time, period of time. So we're seeing uh, skin infections, um, but, but we're also seeing uh, pneumonia and respiratory infections because animals will try and get themselves out of the water and of course they'll inhale a lot of um, water and water droplets as they're trying to do that so they're definitely more prone to having infections in their lungs Um, also seeing some gastrointestinal illness so um, you know through their gut if they um, are obviously getting water that's uh, contaminated you know with bacteria like salmonella and e coli then they're likely to have them impacting the just the lining of their gut and, and you know causing uh, diarrhea, um, and then a few other uh, a few other diseases on the side too, um, things like um, leptospirosis, um, which again it 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 can be shed uh, by carrier animals into the water, and then if other animals in the water come in contact with that bacteria, uh, they uh, can get uh, you know sort of quite nasty uh, kidney infections. But uh, in the case of pregnant animals and cattle and pigs can abort. Um, it also has an impact on um, animals like dogs too, sort of causing a, a nasty blood breaking down disease, anemia, jaundice. And, and people need to be aware too that if they come in contact with that bacteria in the water, and it doesn't even need to be through, you know, them having broken skin, but it can be just through their, you know, mucous membranes and mouth and, and around their eyes, they can actually get a nasty disease from um, leptospirosis too. Um, but also, uh, you know, another disease that we're seeing probably more commonly is mastitis because, um, you know, particularly cattle have had their teats down in the water for longer. And, of course, the bacteria can track up through their teats and into their mammary glands and, you know, cause nasty mastitis as well. So that's something to be aware of too. And with mastitis, what can we do, I guess, touching on that first of all? There's a number of things you mentioned, but mastitis seems to be something that is really front and centre as well, particularly in the dairy industry. Mm -hmm. Uh, What can we do to, I guess, try and prevent or cure it? Um, I suppose particularly in this sort of case is um, prevent, uh, you know, prevent those cows from having their teats in particular in, you know, underwater for long periods of time or even in contact with wet surfaces for long periods of time because obviously, uh, you know, their teats being wet uh, means that the bacteria are more likely to actually be able to, you know, track up into their mammary glands and not only that but the water that, is in contact with those teats is more likely to be, you know, contaminated with the nasty bacteria. Uh, you don't like um, E. coli and staph and, and therefore more likely to pick up mastitis too. And not only that, um, but that water 
actually makes the skin more permeable or more able for the bacteria to go through it too. So that's all those things are contributing to an increased incidence of mastitis, that's for sure. Um, in, term, in terms of preventing it, obviously we want to, you know, try and, uh, try and dry those teats out as you know as much as possible after they're in, a, a, in contact with water for prolonged periods of time. Um, also, you know, using uh, you know the available uh, teat dips and things just to um, help uh, help the bacteria that are normally meant to be on those teats get back you know back to normal levels as quickly as possible. Um, also, keeping an eye on the cows themselves so that you if you do. You know, if you do detect that there's a cow off colour or that she's got a bit of hardness in her mammary gland, then you treat it as soon as possible with one of the available, uh, you know, antibiotic um, intramammaries or alternatively antibiotics via injection. And certainly from that point of view, I would, you know, definitely be in contact with your private vets in terms of what is the appropriate uh, treatment for your particular herd of cows. Um because it varies a lot between you know between farms as to what's going to be the appropriate antibiotic or the appropriate intramammary, and I would certainly you know seek their advice on that and use the appropriate um, teat dips as well. But um, yeah, particularly after flooding, you know the trick is to try and get them dried out as much as you can, um, but also um, keep close observation of those animals so that you treat them at the first sign of you know any mastitis occurring. Yeah, and you see a lot of photos at the moment online of, you know, sheep with quite a lot of wool trying to struggle to get out of a lot of waterlogged flooding areas. When we talk about fly strike, this is a big one this year. Is there anything that we can do to best prevent or how do we go about um, working through fly strike sheep? Yeah, particularly as you've mentioned, it is going to be a big uh, yeah, for fly striking sheep, number one because of waterlogged, uh, you know, waterlogged fleeces, but also potentially because of more wounds from being down in the water as well. So the big, again, the biggest thing is to try and move them to areas where they're actually going to be able to um, dry out um, their fleece, and also so that you can observe them for, you know, wounds on them, so that they can be treated as soon as possible so normal conventional treatment for fly strike is obviously to uh, where wool is involved is to actually uh, remove the wool over the area and leave at least a five centimeter margin around that area that's affected by fly strike also then to treat with the appropriate fly strike chemical um, in in terms of prevention uh, there are uh, a lot of um, excellent uh, chemicals out there now that you can actually put on them to you know um, to really protect them long term about uh, you know against the impact of fly strike. The only complicating thing is you know where animals have been treated with uh, some of the long term fly strike treatments, and then all of a sudden they've been you know hit by floodwaters. We could potentially see impacts from the the length of time of those fly strike treatments meant to uh, meant to persist for that may be reduced a bit where they've been diluted you know for example being in flood water so that's something really important for farmers to keep an eye on don't just assume that because the manufacturer said that your fly strike treatment would you know protect your sheep for um, or fly strike prevention would um, protect your sheep for you know 60 days that it's going to occur especially if they've been um, you know trapped in flood water that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point. And 
We're also hearing a lot about GEV, Japanese encephalitis. What animals, I guess, are most likely to be affected if they are contracted and how do we prevent them from getting it in the first place? Okay, so the two animals that are most likely to contract uh, Japanese encephalitis are uh, pigs and horses. Um, the the mainstay to preventing them from getting it is because it's actually a disease that's uh, transmitted by mosquitoes. Is really to um, improve our games with control with in terms of control of mosquitoes and the contact that we have with the, our animals. So I can't stress enough the importance to control mosquitoes uh, for both pigs and horses, and that means, you know, applying appropriate chemicals where necessary, um, you know, using appropriate mosquito control on property, including, um, you know, getting rid of um, extra, you know, water sources that are just laying around in a breeding ground for mosquitoes, um, there's some really great resources um, in terms of mosquito control on the Farm Biosecurity website for both of those species and they are really good because they specifically will tell you uh, the sort of treatments and chemicals that are appropriate for both of those species. The other thing I need to stress is really important to um, look after, you know, yourself and the other humans on your property too in terms of mosquito exposure because while we talk about preventing mosquitoes from biting, you know, our pigs and our horses, we need to be concentrating on, you know, getting them to not bite humans too. And, and again, um, in terms of mosquito um, control for humans, really important to wear, you know, long sleeve uh, clothing where you can um, apply appropriate, uh, again, appropriate chemicals. And, and again, I can't stress the importance of checking out the, uh, the Department of Health website because they give a lot of great information for humans in terms of protecting themselves from mosquitoes as well. Yeah, we'll get to the vaccinations in a sec. I'd love to touch on what are the signs that we can look out for if an animal is suffering from GEV? Okay, so they're quite distinct signs across the two main species that we see it in. So in pigs, um, it really is affecting their uh, reproductive ability so the main signs that we see are you know stillborn pigs or mummified pigs or pigs that are born uh, very uh, weak and uh, have a, sort of a trembling neurological um, symptoms um, in horses um, most horses won't develop signs but if they do they tend to become uh, a bit weak um, they show jaundice or, or yellowing of the skin um, they bec become anorexic and, and some of them have a, a fever. Um, now, importantly, uh, if this develops on further in horses, they actually get um, neurological signs where they become quite incoordinated and they can't eat properly. They, their tongue tends to loll around in their mouth um, and they tend to have impaired vision. Um, and beyond that, they there is a, a, what we call a hyperexcitable version in horses where they become... Uh, really distressed and quite aggressive um, and, you know, very incoordinated and, um, yeah, and so that's quite a nasty version of the disease that some of them can get. And where are we at with vaccinations for animals? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's vaccinations available for humans, but for animals, what's the story there? 
So the pig vaccinations, uh, there are actually currently a few projects uh, and projects um, groups actually developing vaccines for pigs at the moment in Australia. Um, we're still some time off them being uh, officially approved, but they are in the pipelines and moving further. Um, in horses, the current vaccines are manufactured in Japan. And again, to bring them into Australia, it has to go through uh, application permits in terms of emergency use permits and in terms of import permits. Um, they are currently being or have currently just been lodged and then it will take some time for the APVMA to approve the use of the vaccine uh, for horses. Um, some horses currently are vaccinated, but they are horses that have either been exported or imported into Australia uh, through Singapore and Japan where, where there's an export and import requirement for those horses to be uh, vaccinated, but that's again, that's a different um, user permit for import and export horses. Thank you so much, Kathy, for your time today. Any final words of wisdom that you might like to leave with us? Um, I think uh, you know, just with regards to uh, to floods and flooding in the future, um, always have always have plans in place as to what you do with your livestock because you know flooding can impact us really at any you know any time I mean this has been a particularly uh, bad season but that's not to say we won't you know suffer seasons like this again so really important just to be up to date with your general livestock uh, you know treatment programs like your vaccinations and your worming programs but also to have a flood plan so that, in other words, um, you have, you know, you identify things like the higher points on your property and routes that your livestock could potentially um, go along to get to those points. Um, also things like uh, if you know uh, flooding's going to potentially impact you to move your animals or to try and move them ahead of time. Um, also, also to you know, make sure of things like that your identification on your animals is up to date, and your your livestock inventory, so that if you need to keep a um, you know track of where your animals are, uh, you know they have permanent ID in their ears, like their NLS tags, but you also have a record, you know, um, of how many animals you've got and their identifications, because that would, is much easier to do. Um, and keep a track of ahead of time rather than in the you know helter skelter of a response to animals being flooded in a in a paddock. Um, also, to make sure that if worse comes to the worst and you need to confine them in a higher area on your property, that you actually have a fodder source, you know, that you, a, a backup fodder source for your animals, but also a backup water source for them too when they need it. Oh, thank you so much, Kathy. And Victorians affected by the floods can call the flood recovery hotline for help with a range of different services. It's one 760 760 You can also find the AgVic Financial Support Services link in the show notes. So click on that to receive more information around how you can be financially supported during this tough time. Thanks again, Kathy, for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And I hope that, uh, you know, we provided some helpful information to people along the way. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed these episodes. 
We're pleased to provide these key takeaways and resources in one place to support flood-affected farmers and communities during this tough time. Please enjoy and don't forget to share these with your farmer mates and your networks. And of course, if the VFF or the Making Our Farm Safer team can be of any assistance, please get in touch. Safe farming.